Also, so, no, so cool that you are editing that show. I know! Mm. Um, yay. I am currently being a sound designer for the Tall Grass um, podcast, especially for their Abby and Friends series. And I put in all the music and sound effects and things. And I love it! It's one of my favourite podcasts and I'm so happy! <laughs> Highly recommend you listen to it, not for like egotistical reasons, but just because everyone is so lovely and welcoming and the content is wonderful. Yay! That sounds really nice. Thanks! An avocado! Thanks! Thanks! I love that vine. So relatable. I've quoted it at Claire many times and she still is confused. Have you not watched that vine? I don't think I've ever actually seen it. Now it's too late. <laughs> no, it's not. Dead. Callum, when we break to watch the film... Instead, we're going watch to watch that. that. You're going to watch I that. See it's how it goes. It's an film. avocado. Thanks. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of our podcast where we make blind assumptions about a film, and then we... Well, we see how it goes. Why do we always forget to say God our names? damn it. Eh. Take it away, Cal. Who are you? Who am I? Two, um, four, six, so done. I'm Callum. What? <laughs> I'm Carrie. <laughs> I'm Callum. I'm Carrie. And I'm Claire. And welcome to our podcast where we make blind assumptions about a film and then we, well, we see how it goes. Sometimes it goes really terribly. And sometimes it's pure greatness. Let's find out which one it's going to be today. <laughs> see, see how it goes. So uh, welcome everybody to, uh, to today's episode where we are going to be covering uh, my personal favourite film of all time. I know you're probably going to be expecting this to be a bit because that's that's how I've worked so far on this podcast. But this is genuinely my, my favourite film of all time. Uh, and it is called My Favourite Year. I have an initial question for you, Callum. Yes. Is it your favourite because it's already got my favourite in the title? Has it just like subliminally become its favourite? Your favourite? Mother of God. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible. I, I, I have no idea. But um, I, I, I love this film for a great many reasons that we will be, uh, I'm sure, discussing uh, after we've... Uh, or watched it, but uh, just to just to go around and make sure everyone's on the on the same page. Uh, Claire, have you watched this film before? I have watched this film before. I have watched this film three times before because it's your favourite film. Yeah, that's accurate. I didn't think it was three times. I might, I thought I'd like shown it to you once, maybe. You showed it to me when we first started dating, so four years ago. Oh, gross. Soz. We watched it on the train coming home from my friend's wedding. Uh, which was like three and a half years ago. And then we watched it again in sometime in 2017. And then I don't think we've watched it since. So I have seen this before. Thank you for, for clearing that up for me. Uh, Carrie, have you seen this film? I have not. I literally have never heard of this film until you said you wanted to do this as an episode. And I was like, that sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like accidentally online, I may have seen a poster of it. I vaguely remember what the poster looks like, but apart from that and the title, I have no idea. Oh, I know. And it's a comedy musical. That's all I know. Interesting. Is it not a comedy musical? I guess we're going to find out. But yeah. Oh, no. As, as opposed to a lot of the films that uh, people uh, that we've done so far on this podcast, my favourite year is relatively obscure. So you may not know it particularly well, but I really would recommend, um, as we always do with, with episodes of this podcast, that you uh, you watch the films yourselves as well, especially with this one, because you're not you're not necessarily likely to know it otherwise. And uh, it's a really lovely film. So just so uh, so everyone listening is aware, um, as I'm sure you already know, COVID-19 is making things real fun for us here in the UK at the moment. So we are actually uh, recording this uh, in two separate places. Uh, which is uh, why Carrie is not in, in the room with us right now and uh, there might be a little bit of a, a difference in audio quality or just kind of like a, a, a different sound to what you'd normally expect from the three of us in a room. I don't understand why you have to lie to our listeners. I'm with you in spirit and that's what really matters. Carrie is haunting this podcast. 
That's oh what's God. happening right now. Ka- Carrie is dead. She is haunting the podcast. I mean, you are literally recording underneath a sheet right now. You could just go, <laughs> Yeah, to clarify for listeners, I am recording under a blanket in my room. I'm currently using a lamp to hold up the blanket. <laughs> I'm using a tissue box to hold up my phone. It's a fun, it's a fun aesthetic for Callum and Claire to look at whilst recording. Professional recording quality. See, All I- you can expect with this podcast. <laughs> Anyway, so because this film is uh, one hour and 32 minutes long, Carrie, you will have one minute and 32 seconds to predict what you think is going to happen in this film. Are you ready? No. Okay, starting. Three, two, one. Now. Okay, I'm basing this off. So when I saw the poster, I think it was a guy in a pilot jacket and a lady and they're swinging on a rope or something like that. So it begins with a dude named... George. He's an okay dude. He was a bit of a joker at school and he decides he wants to be a pilot. So he he goes and does that L Woods montage and he ends up going to pilot school. And then he's 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 bullied in his first year um because he's new and and I don't know, he's a dork and he likes playing chess or something. And then he meets a girl. Her name is Roberta and she's sassy and she learns things quick and um, they discover they both have a mutual love for Bruce Springsteen and that's how they bond as a couple and then when it gets to exam time um, they find their love for each other and they end up snogging and turns out Roberta has a, has a, has a boyfriend but he ends up passing exams and he ends up becoming a pilot and that's why it is their favourite year. How long do I have how long do I have left? 22 seconds. Um, also, uh, Roberta does have a boyfriend. His name is um, Jetson, because um, he's referred to by his last name. And he is a he works in um, Top Man. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a loser. And he Stop. beats up... <laughs> I think my first question, her boyfriend is called Jetson, who is referred to by his last name. So is he just called Son? Is he Jetson? No, no. his last name is Jetson. And he and he's, he's at pilot school to fly jets. Jetson. Jetson the jet boy. Who works no, at Top I said Man. he works at Top Man. He's not in pilot school. You guys need to pay attention. Oh, I see. When you said Top Man, were you trying to think of something akin to Top Gun? No. Top Gun. <laughs> but I should have really accepted that and thinking that was a really creative choice on my part. But I, I'm a Hufflepuff and so honesty is the best policy. So let's find out uh, after we've watched the film if honesty is the best policy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, there, there were some, uh, some very interesting predictions there. Uh, some of them may be correct. Many of them may be no extremely incorrect. Uh, so uh, I guess we'll have to see how it goes. See how it goes. Have I ever heard of you? Hi folks, you're stuck with me as Claire was not able to record the mid-roll trivia thing. I don't think we ever came up with a name for it. But you might have seen on our social media that we have talked about a certain actor before on the podcast, though she made a cameo in our next film. In fact, she's the oldest actor to be nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards. I can now tell you it is the actress who cameoed in the romantic waltz Gloria Stewart, yes, the one who said it had been 84 years since she met Jack Dawson on the Titanic, got to do a very lovely romantic dance with Peter O'Toole in order for him to look hot to a very attractive lady. You know, swings and roundabouts. Okay, now back to the show. Right. Shall we, shall we get going again? Yeah. Cool. Yeet. No, I'm holding a cup of tea. No, I've already said it. You've got to yeet it now. 
Okay. Those are the rules. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> as, as Claire yeets her cup of tea into All the wall. All over your microphone and computer. Are you sure about that? I have to rethink some things. Um... <laughs> So, uh, welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching My Favourite Year. So, I guess, uh, any thoughts before we get started? I really enjoyed this film. It's got its issues, which, you know, we'll get into later. But I just... It's one of those films that I really, really enjoy. But I find it very difficult to pinpoint exactly why I enjoy it. You know, it's not, this scene is stunning. This is the best cinematography I've ever seen. It's just... A generally very enjoyable film for me. Okay. Uh, Carrie, what are your thoughts? It was I. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel really guilty, but like it was it was hit and miss for me, which I'll kind of explain why later. But yeah, I don't want to be the yeah. Debbie Downer of the episode. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's absolutely fine. It's, it's always I find it more interesting when people have differing opinions on things and I'm not one of those people who's going to be like this is my favorite film so you are wrong like I'm fully uh, willing to accept that there are issues with this film and I'm interested to find out what it is that particularly bothered you about it with that in mind I think it's time we moved on to uh, everyone's favorite section of the podcast good <laughs> good and good. bad <laughs> you started and saying it but then you stopped yeah I started saying it and then I realised you guys have ruined me in the last episode because I heard it in the high school musical. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a train wreck. Alright. Do you want to try again? Yeah. Let's try it again. Good and bad. And Oh, that's a spicy time delay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's in you time were in for time you. for me. Yeah, for us, it's... Uh, you were singing about a second and a half after us. Just call it that you were singing it in canon and it's fine. Yeah, it's 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 Frere avant-garde. Jacques, Frere Jacques, that's made it worth keeping this shit. <laughs> anyway, after that, um, after that cacophony, um, Claire, what's your good bit for this film? Okay, so like I just said, I found it quite difficult to pinpoint, you know, the real things that I found the best things about this film. So I'm going to um, just zoom in, I guess, on one really, really tiny detail that I just thought was genius. And it was Peter O'Toole, who was a classical English actor, playing Alan Swan, a classical English film actor. And uh, Alan Swan, or Peter O'Toole as Alan Swan, was always wearing eyeliner around the eyes in the style of old theatre stage makeup. So if you Google stage makeup from like the, um, I guess the kind of late 1800s to, I want to say around like the kind of 1950s, 1940s I want to say please feel free to correct me yeah those of you who have more knowledge of theatre makeup Carrie <laughs> I mean yeah it's like basically full-on like foundation bronzer really really thick eyeliner to make sure that people could see your eyes when they were watching you on stage which in my opinion is a little bit ineffective anyway but like that's how history works and maybe some blush as well it's basically really ingrained in British theatre tradition. Yeah, uh, and so essentially you've got that makeup until the really modern improvements in theatre lighting, which uh, now mean that you can actually have shows where no one wears makeup. So like the current but postponed production of Les Miserables in the Sondheim Theatre, none of the actors on stage wear makeup, and I find that fascinating. But um, yeah, so in this uh, film, Peter O'Toole was wearing that really classic um, eyeliner look for all of his scenes. And I just thought that it really helped sell the character as this really, really like classic English actor. And the makeup artist for the film, Dan, and I might be pronouncing his name wrong here, but uh, Dan Streetpeak. I looked him up and he was actually nominated for like two Academy Awards, not for this film, but for um, other films starring Tom Hanks actually. 
Um, he was a really, really um, celebrated makeup artist and had a very, very long career, about 40 years. And honestly, it really, really makes sense because just that tiny little detail just really, really sold the character for me. And yeah, I just thought that um, Dan did a really, really good job on it. I think there's a, there's a lot of tiny things about the way that Peter O'Toole uh, characterised Alan Swan and the way in which the whole kind of production of the film pushed him as a character that makes him both completely farcical and yet really heartachingly believable. Mm. And it's really difficult to toe the line between someone who is an obvious caricature and yet is so grounded at the same time. And they somehow managed to sell it both. And I think that's testament both to Peter O'Toole as an actor that he can sell that and to the production of the film in general that it can support that character. So, uh, Carrie, what's your good bit for this film? I was going to say, actually, that Peter O'Toole, I think he was the most consistently likeable for me throughout the film. I think especially the way he's written, especially in the last half where he's talking about, oh, his name's not really Alan Swan, he's this guy from England, his dad was a, um, what was his dad again? A grammar school teacher. Grammar school teacher, thank you. And he has these deep self-worth issues in regards to whether or not he is a good father. And he's kind of been punishing himself for that for years. They could have gone even deeper with that. I would have been a lot more interested in kind of really digging deeper into his psychology and him coming to terms with it. Because otherwise it kind of felt like his not argument, but when Benji is giving him this encouragement speech, if we found a bit more about the way he was thinking, I felt like that would have been a bit more warranted. I, I would have really loved to learn more about him and his character because I found him the most fascinating out of everyone. It was 1954. Television was live. And Benji Stone landed the job of his dreams as a TV comedy writer. It was the year Hollywood's greatest hero swashbuckled his way onto live TV and into Benji's life. He's blasted! Good God, it's Renfield. I thought he was dead. So, I'm afraid. I'm flesh and blood, life-size, no larger. I'm not that silly damn hero I never was. To me, you were. You couldn't have convinced me unless you had that courage. Nobody's that good an actor. I'd, I'd certainly agree. I think that he has a... Th th there's a real depth to the character that we, we get to see little hints of all the time. There are occasional lines in most of the scenes that he's in that are just like, here is a unexpected depth to this character who seems very outwardly buffoonish that's just like just enough to make you think oh that's interesting but then they always move straight on to something else and I really wish we would have had the time to sit with that uh some more I am wondering because there is a stage musical adaptation of this is there really I'm not surprised actually yeah it's, it's very interesting uh Alan Swan was originally played in that production by uh Tim Curry no way brilliant yeah. that's so fantastic that's I've great casting. The, uh, I've never seen the show. I really want to because I feel like the extra length that could be given by a, a musical as opposed to the just like one hour 30 film could really help to do that. And also like having like songs from the perspective of Alan Swan to give you that inner monologue that you don't get because the film is from the perspective of Benji could really like help to deepen that. I... Fully see what you mean. And like, I would love to, like like you guys, I would love to see more depth to uh, the character of Alan Swan and like really kind of dig a bit deeper into his psyche. But also I, I love the way that just as you feel like you're getting to know him and he's, you know, giving a bit of, for example, backstory and like you've got some redeeming qualities, he just immediately goes I guess not entirely back to the way that he was but he just immediately becomes this kind of farcical character again so a really good example of this is when he's having that conversation about his uh, childhood and about how he's not actually called Alan Swan that's like his stage name and how um, this persona that he is was originally like created for him by the media company and now he's like I don't know who where that ends and where I begin and he's having this really, really interesting discussion. 
And then he sees an unattended police horse and he's like, I'm a stealer. It just sells the characters so well. And especially because this is happening, this film happens over the course of maybe a week, maybe like a few days. It's, it's one week, yeah. May one I ask week. a question? Why is it Denji's favourite year when it takes place within a week? Because I, th- I think it's because it means a lot to him. This this film, I think, is supposed to be really evocative of that specific time period of the, like, 1954. This was what was happening then. This is what people were like then. And this was what was important to me then. And this is, like, the year in which, like, he met Alan Swan. He managed to get himself hired to this TV show where he would meet him. Ended up with the the woman that he was in love with, like... I can see how it would be, like, a big year, and a lot of it is down to this one week. I do question, though, like, they could have called it my favourite week. <laughs> I just, yeah, I find it interesting, especially because it's, it's, it's very odd, and you don't tend to see this very often in, in films, where the main character, like, the point-of-view character, is clearly not the protagonist of the story. Mm. Yes. Um, He's a bystander. Yeah, he's he's someone who is there to witness someone else's story for this period of time and to recount it to you. I was just trying to think of any other films recently that have worked like that for me. And the only other one, uh, speaking of witness appropriately, is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, I it's... was thinking of Frozen. <laughs> Frozen? Really? Okay, hear me out. Anna is essentially the straight character. She has her own narrative, uh, as does... Benji Stone, you know, he has his own narrative. He's a writer, he's trying to get stuff done. He really likes this girl and he wants to be with her. They they have their own narratives, but the film is centered and the the main kind of through line of the plot is on this really massively flamboyant, I guess not flamboyant, but very, what's a good word for like- um, Larger than life. Yeah, this very like larger than life character with obviously in my favorite year it's Alan Swan who is this extremely wealthy extremely flamboyant um actor who Benji has to like look after in Frozen it's her sister who suddenly has magical powers and everyone wants to kill her that's a pretty big plot point so I would argue that yes Frozen is a valid example of that I I would like in in this little uh, this little side adventure we're having (laughs) into talking about Frozen for a second to 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 put put you just like a thought experiment if Elsa didn't have the song Let It Go, would you have considered her a main character anymore? Yes. I no, would not. I wouldn't, actually. In- the entirety of her character development is that song. Everything else that she does is ignore people, develop magic powers, run away, come back at the end. She has very little to actually do. And I think all of it comes down to that one song. I wish song. we could do an episode on Frozen, but the problem is that all of us have seen Frozen. I haven't seen Frozen 2. Neither have I. Neither have I. Well, we so can... we can't do an so episode of... on it. So one of us needs to take the plunge. I'll do it. <laughs> the plunge it into anyway. the frozen lake. Anyway, uh... let's get back to talking about the film we're actually talking about this episode. <laughs> yeah, so essentially... I love that you get glimpses into the depth of his character, but then it's kind of just gone straight on to, you know, the next thing he's doing, such as stealing this police horse and taking Benjamin with him. This is happening over the course of a week, and a week can be very life-changing, but I think to have, you know, that real proper redemption arc of, for example, you know, he has a breakdown, he gets sober, would be a bit... It wouldn't feel as realistic as getting like glimpses of it and then the through line of his flamboyant character. But that's just my opinion. I, I like how you don't quite get fully satisfied. You don't get that full redemption arc, but it's realistic because it's the course of a week. Yeah, it, it doesn't say. And in this one week, I t- turned him from a like an alcoholic nobody into someone who was ready to go and str- strut the boards on the stage and be a movie star again, and he he reconnected with his daughter because of me. It's all just kind of like, I I was here and I gave him a push to help him make a decision. But it's not like everything. I don't think it, it like, if, if it had turned into, this is how I, I managed to get my, my old hero to sober up and be a good person, it wouldn't have that same resonance with me, I don't think. I wouldn't necessarily say, like, 
in terms of delving deeper into it, it would mean solving the problem. It would just mean I would have maybe liked to see how... Because you know, like, by the end of the film, there's a start of a character arc, there's, like, a turning point, and I would have liked to see a bit more of him making that acknowledgement and progress to make that point, if that makes sense. Like, actually seeing him reconnect with his daughter a bit, or, like, start to reconnect with his daughter, like, have that scene? I'll talk a little bit about that later, actually. Okay. That might be more to do with my point, but yes. Callum, what's your favourite bit? (laughs) Favourite bit of my favourite year? (laughs) My favourite bit of my favourite year. It's difficult to say because I have so many things about this film that I just absolutely adore, like, with all my heart. But I'm going to go with something which I only noticed on this viewing, this being, like, my probably sixth or seventh time watching this film. And I'm going to talk about the music that is uh, written for the the, 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 the film, the, the score by Ralph Burns, fantastic composer. I don't know if I've ever heard any of his other work, but I definitely think he's he's up there in my film score composers just from this one film. Mainly because right at the beginning of the film, underneath like the opening monologue talking about 1954, what a year, what all this kind of stuff, um, there is a song that is playing, an, an old jazz standard called How High the Moon. And I thought, okay, that's that that's cool. I, I, I like that song. It's from about that time. It would have been very popular at the time. It really helped set the tone. But then in the score, in the orchestral score for it, underneath pretty much all the scenes, either the chords or the melody of How High the Moon are somewhere in there. He manages to take this song, which is supposed to be encapsulating the time period in the year, and put it in every single bit and every moment of the score of this film to give that kind of musical through line of the continuity of it. Even when it's got like wildly different tones. So like you've got like the like soppy romantic version. There's a dance version that plays when they're at the, uh, when they're at the dinner place. Then uh, when they're running away from the apartment building and they have like the mad, like, Oh, what's the name of the genre of music? Um, Funky chicken. No, stop. Jazz. Uh, <laughs> there's like a, a a Jewish klezmer like violin solo. Someone like completely going ham on a violin while they're running away. The chords underneath that are the chords from How High the Moon. It's someone doing a jazz klezmer solo over the chords of this song. And I was just like, oh, such detail in the background that you wouldn't notice, but you kind of feel. That it's like, this is familiar, this song, like, this music feels like it's all congruous. All taken from this one song which is supposed to encapsulate the time and the place and the emotion. It's just, ugh. It's, it's, it's amazing, it's fantastic musical work, and it is just, like, testament to how much a composer can do with such little material. So, uh, Ralph Burns, my hat goes off to you, sir. The score to this uh, film is magnificent. I obviously did not notice that and you explaining that that I think really comes back to that point of really really enjoy this film it's so difficult to pinpoint exactly why and you know it's really difficult to like pinpoint the things that make it good because there's just so much going on in the background which you don't even realize is going on which your brain is like oh this is good so uh, th- those are our good bits. Now let's move on to our, our bad bits from the film. Uh, continuing our go around the circle, uh, Claire, what was your bad bit for this film? So my bad bit is definitely one that we have discussed in previous episodes. And this film, like a lot of others, um, does kind of fall prey to this. And it's the fact that the female characters are kind of non-entities. They don't really have their own narratives apart from just to like drive the male character's story forward. Um, They didn't really have much of like their own characters. And you know, this film was made in the 1970s, 80s. Was it 1980? It was released in 1982. Yeah, Yeah, it was released in 1982 and it's set in the 50s. So it is, you know, a a product of its time. This very much does not pass the Bechdel test. For anyone who doesn't know, the Bechdel test is basically two women having a conversation not about a man. Two named female characters. Sorry, two named female characters having a conversation that is not about a man. I would argue that this film barely passes the sexy lamp test in which female characters can be replaced by a sexy lamp and it wouldn't really impact the story. The yeah. Main, yeah, the main female character in this is um, Benji's love interest. 
and you could you know she she does have personality does she does she have personality? I feel like in that one scene. I feel like she would be a very sophisticated, sexy lamp. Yeah, like she'd have a really nice dress on. Like after she snogs Benji in that dinner and a film scene and they end up snogging, she doesn't do anything else. Yeah. She just shows up at the end, like holding his hand and I'm like, cool, <laughs> sexy lamp time. I think that scene is the last scene where she has any lines. I don't think she says anything for the whole rest of the film. Yeah, yeah, literally the whole purpose of her is it's as a character development moment for Benji and for him to learn things from Peter at all, sorry, from Alan Swan as like bonding in that he has this woman who he really, really fancies and wants to be with. She keeps rejecting him because in the film he's not playing it cool and he's just being way too keen and then Alan Swan gives him a little bit of advice, which he follows. And then they, she ends up, you know, falling for Benji and they kiss and then they're together. And presumably it's happily ever after. And therefore she only exists as a plot point for Benji, not really as a character in her own right. May I just also add that at the beginning, there's a difference between being keen and literally chasing after someone into the ladies' toilets to propose to someone even when it's clearly not the right time and also pretending that having dinner in a movie is meant to be a friend thing when it's obvious that it is planned in order to make a move oh yeah i was fully saying that as in like this is what the film this is the narration that the film wants you to have but you know in 2020 we're watching it and it's like she is Rejecting him over and over again, being very, very explicit in that she does not want to pursue a future with him. Uh, he keeps putting a lot of pressure on her, giving, you know, trying to offer her treasured family heirlooms, which she then just chucks away when she rejects it, which would have put her in a very difficult position, you know, very, very guilty. He chases her into the ladies' toilets. It's. Yes, Benji is very much problematic TM in this film. Uh, and yeah, the, the female characters are kind of non-entities who primarily exist just to serve the kind of male character arcs. Yeah, I'd say that the only female character that I think has a like consistent personality that is not specifically tied to a plot point is the woman in the writer's room, Alice. She is pretty much the only person who's like, I am here to take part in conversations, but I don't have like a plot point tied to me and I'm not someone's love interest or someone's mum. I'm just here. I would like to counter that with the fact that she is literally a mouthpiece for one of the male characters. That's true. Yeah, so this character, Herb, which I think you're going to talk about later, Yeah. Um, where his, his thing is that he uh, won't really talk. He'll kind of whisper what he wants to say to this... Um, female character Alice who is is she a writer yeah yeah I think so uh he is a writer uh and then she essentially says his sarcastic remarks for him and like she does have her own lines as well but also she does serve as a mouthpiece for one of the male characters yeah I guess that yeah this film does not have uh much in the way of strong characters for for women there is only like a little bit in which the, the love interest Casey has like any kind of sense of character to her. And that is during the, the quote unquote dinner in a movie scene when they're having the conversation. He's trying to teach her how to tell a joke. And she's just like, I, I, can't, I can't do it. I'm trying my best, but I'm not very good at it. And it's like, e even though it's like showing like a flaw in her character, it's like, at least there is something there. There's very little in the way of like representation of actual characters for the females in this film. And a lot of them are literally just like sexy lamp sex objects. Yeah, a lot of them are literally like sexy cigarette cartons. I had forgotten about that. Yeah. Damn it, it doesn't pass the sexy cigarette box test. <laughs> if you replaced one of these characters with the sexy cigarette box, wait, no, they already are a sexy cigarette box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's a product of its time we're watching it in 2020 uh when thankfully stuff has moved on a considerable amount 38 years ago oh my goodness that's a long yeah. time quick maths yeah that's my bad bit 
Carrie, with your quick maths, what's your bad bit? <laughs> this bit is kind of in addition to my main bad bit. I feel like a lot they were dealing with a lot of subplots that they could have cut it down and then divulged a little bit further. Like the development of Casey and Benji's relationship, they could have probably picked either that or the um, mafia, whatever the heck that was going on, subplot. Like, I feel like they should have picked one of them and just stuck with it because they weren't really fully detailed enough for it to be really something I was engaged to follow. Like, I didn't really care. I just felt that at the end, it was very rushed. I loved the bit when Peter, when Alan Swan, like, swooped in and saved King from that assassin attack and everyone's punching each other on stage and it's hilarious. And then Alan Swan, like, realises that, you know he's he's kind of revived himself in terms of like his passion for performing and then it's kind of a zoom in on him through the camera and then it's like a really short narration from Benji and then it just ends the way you see him here like this this is the way I like to remember him I think if you had asked Alan Swan what was the single most gratifying moment in his life he might have said this one right here. The next day, I drove up to Connecticut with him and Alfie. This time he knocked on the door, and when he and Tess saw each other, it was like they'd never been apart. Like Alfie says, with Swan, you forgive a lot, you know? I know. I just personally found it really underwhelming because it was a tiny snippet of what could have been a really good ending if they carried on just a little bit further to show us him reconnecting with his daughter and maybe something a little bit with Benji in terms of maybe him learning something about himself along the way. It just all felt a bit like, well, that's it. Goodbye, everyone. Like, it's an hour 32. It could have expanded a little bit more. I know what you mean. Like, it did end, like, right at the climax of the plot, whereas a lot of films will have an extra, like, 10 minutes or so afterwards just to kind of wrap everything up. I feel like it could have benefited, even from, like, just another five minutes of epilogue, you know, seeing him interact with his daughter, doing, like, the, sh the show-not-tell kind of thing with that. Yeah, this this film in in terms of kind of uh, story structure, you tend to have you know you get to you get to the peak of the story, and then you have your like what you could either call like an epilogue, or depending on what you depending on which terminology you use, um, the the kind of highest point is like the apotheosis of the film, and then you have like a little denouement at the end to kind of guide you back to a point of okay, and now things have reached kind of a a, a stable point. This film does just go like. Okay, we're at the point where everything's coming together. Look, here's like the, the the summation point of all of these things, and then it's over. It kind of leaves you in that state of like, I wish there was something more. And part of that for me, like, I do wish that it was a little bit longer. Instead of having a narration scene of, you know, we 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 did the show and it all went well, and then he went to go and see his daughter, and she forgave him, and they were just happy and together again. It was like, if you'd just given me like a two-minute scene of him arriving at that house and walking up to the door, and you get to see him kind of think about it and then just knock on that door and see his daughter, that, that would have been, been so satisfying. Mm. Yeah. And like, I see what they were going for in terms of, it starts off with narration and it ends with narration. It, you know, it bookends it nicely. But I feel like you really could have, you could have uh, combined the two. You could have had narration of, you know, this is what happened. He, he went to the house and well, you can see for yourself. And he's just like, oh, knock on, you know, hesitation. He has to psych himself up for it. See his daughter and you've got that resolution. Yeah, like you guys are saying, it, that would have been really, really satisfying. Yeah. And, like, you could have kept the narration as well. You could have just had the same narration over, like, a shot of him walking into the house. And you could have been like, oh, well, I wish people could have seen Alan as I did at the time that he was on the stage. And, you know, when he went back in and he reconciled with his daughter, she forgave him. You know, people forgive Alan for a lot, you know. You could have had the exact same narration over just that scene instead. And it would have felt like a resolution. Yeah. So I, I completely agree with you on that point that... For a film this good, the fact they didn't quite stick the landing on the ending is frustrating. Yes. What is your bad bit, Cal? Uh, so my bad bit 
is that the character of uh, Rocky Kuroka, the, uh, the the boxer um, that is married to uh, Benji's mum, he seems to exist purely to be the butt of racist jokes. Yeah. Like, yeah. he doesn't serve a plot purpose. He seems to be purely for a couple of jokes that that go on in the film that are like they're not very funny anyway about the pronunciation of his name and i'm like if you're married to him if you're like if you're a decent person <laughs> yeah it just yeah it bothered yeah. it really bothered me the, the the fact that the main jokes about him are that no one can be bothered to pronounce his, his name correctly and then he has everyone around for dinner and serves them parrot oh i missed that bit that is quite terrible yeah that's not it's not funny and in a film that is so consistently on point of its jokes, the fact that, that those jokes just don't land maybe is testament to the fact that, you know, times have moved on a lot since then, and that joke may have been funny in 1982. It's not funny anymore. And not in like a, oh no, in just kind of like a, oh, I guess that was supposed to be a joke, maybe, way. But even then, with that bad bit, um, the fact that no one seems to treat him well, including his own quote-unquote family members in the film, the fact that the only person who treats him remotely nicely is Alan, is fantastic, I think, as a character point that he's like, oh, I know who you are, I saw you fight and I was impressed with you, I like you as a person, we're going you to get along You did some cool fine. things. Mm. Yeah. The fact that... I like, respect you. Yeah. The fact that Alan doesn't make any racist jokes... The fact that Alan doesn't comment on any way about that and is the only person who pronounces his name correctly is amazing. The fact he is basically being a decent human being. Yeah. yeah. Oh dear. Yeah, no, that, that's why I didn't really like the family at all. I felt like they were really indecent. I felt like they were racist. I was like, I don't care about these people. Yeah, I didn't really enjoy the family scene either because it was just... I mean, the point of it was to make... Essentially, to make Alan uncomfortable because it was uh, two ladies fawning over him. Uh, one, the uncle, trying to really play it cool. Uh, one of the ladies literally came in a wedding dress. Yeah, and, and everyone was just kind of asking awkward questions. And I think it was a real testament to Alan's character in that, like, he remained very, very charming throughout. And you could say that, oh, as, like, a narrative device, it shows that he remains very charming in very uncomfortable situations. And that's, you know, uh, part of his character. And we're being shown that there. But, yeah, that scene just makes me as the audience member feel uncomfortable. I don't really enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy the fact that it shows that he is uncomfortable in this situation, but plays it cool and charming and all that kind of stuff. But then as soon as he gets into the car and they leave, he's like, I immediately need to drink because I was reminded of the daughter that I don't see anymore. Yeah. And it's like, you can make that connection between the two things, which you might not have previously because they've only mentioned vaguely, oh yeah, he has a daughter. Oh no, that was a direct line. He he was drinking because he talked about his daughter with Benji's mum. And Benji's mum said, shame on you for not going to see her. Uh, yeah. And in the car he said, shame on me for not going to see her. Yeah, but what I'm, what I'm saying is, that's the point when we as an audience can make the connection between those two things, that his daughter and his alcoholism are related. Oh, I'm with you, sorry. Where previously, we know that he drinks a bunch and the only information that we had about his daughter was the fact that he said he had one. And she's 12. Oh, can I make... Who's, that, who's Benji's boss that makes like a statutory rape joke about her? Sai. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, no, no, that's not funny. Mm. That's not... That's just not even... That, oh god no yeah. no no stop no no please god no stop no oh yeah yeah in, in quick succession he makes a racist irish joke and then a rape joke about a 12 year old yeah. and it's like this no. is not a no 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 thank you anyway so yeah anyway uh moving on from uh one one uncomfortable thing to to uh to a, a very very comfortable thing for us our home territory Memes. Memes. That was completely out of time. I love it. But the audience will never know. But we were out of time, Cal. <laughs> I will never know. 
Oh, well. You'll know. It's fine. Babe, you'll know. <laughs> it's, it's fine. I always it's keep fine. in our cock-ups. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah. We're, most people edit to try and edit around them sounding bad. We edit specifically to give you the worst of what we have here at this podcast. Yeah, we're actually it's, it's all really... Remote. Yeah, we're actually all really professional. It's just the editing. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's for comedic my fault sorry folks yeah, i bring yeah. the chaotic energy into the podcast and into the edit so there's no escaping <laughs> it you, you know when people say like we'll fix it in the edit we go we'll ruin it in the edit <laughs> <laughs> anyway memes. memes claire what's your meme memes okay my meme is okay so there's a scene where alan swan decides that a really good idea is to, uh, as a complete drunkard, have a flagrant disregard for health and safety. That's not my point for once, because he's incredibly drunk and it's very much in character for him. I accept that he wouldn't do a risk assessment on this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) However, uh, my meme is that he basically ties himself to a fire hose on the top of a building and then kind of tries to abseil down the building to get into a party that he thinks someone is going to be at, and long story short, he gets the wrong party. And uh, someone notices him hanging kind of just underneath the balcony where these two people at the party are talking. And this guy says to the guy he's talking to, it's like, I think Alan Swan's beneath us. And then the other guy says, yes, he's an actor. Of course he's beneath us. And then the other guy's like, no, really, I think he's hanging under the balcony right now. And they kind of go to look and like start hauling him up. But just as the camera like pans to Alan Swan, he's like hanging down. He's got a cigarette in his hand and he kind of brings his hand up so that the camera can see it. And he is very obviously, it's been can you miss it, but he does the two fingered salute essentially to the people who were just talking about him. And this film is uh, American. I think Peter O'Toole is the only English actor. And as an English actor, he would have absolutely known what he was doing. It was definitely deliberate. He definitely kind of played it off because he had the cigarette like between his fingers, but where the cigarette is, it's right at the base of his fingers instead of where you'd usually hold it, you know, with my extensive smoking experience, having never smoked. Essentially, he's just very, very obviously, very quickly. Very deliberate. <laughs> very deliberately uh, giving the two fingered salute to these two people who were just disparaging him. And we respect the tool. It absolutely made me crack up. Did you just call him a tool? <laughs> We respect the tool. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. Cool. Uh, So, Carrie, what's your meme? I kept on thinking this throughout the entire bloody film. Tom Hanks is what Benji Stone wanted to be. Like, not necessarily Benji Stone, the name of the actor. I don't know the name of the actor, but he's basically a budget Tom Hanks. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I I get what you mean. It's like... You could easily have convinced me that this was, like, 20-year-old Tom Hanks. <laughs> because they look, it's, it's the hair, it's the face shape, it's the demeanour. I'm just like, either Tom Hanks rejected this film or he was one of the final three and for some reason, budget Tom Hanks got the job. Can I add a fun fact here? Yes. Sure. You know that makeup artist that I was talking about earlier, Dan Streepeak? Yeah. Who went on to get two Academy Award nominations. Yeah. Those were for Tom Hanks films and he became known as a makeup artist who did a lot of work with Tom Hanks. He'd had practice. That's right? <laughs> practice? Oh my God. That's fantastic. <laughs> so it might have been deliberate. Yeah. It <laughs> no, all I've makes sense del- now. It all fits it all together. Fits. <laughs> wheels within wheels makeup within makeup <laughs> but yeah that's all I thought the whole time I just wanted to put a, pi- a sl- I just want to slap a picture of Tom Hanks like baby Tom Hanks on Benji's face the entire time well as in like have the film exactly the same <laughs> except the actor playing Benji is just wearing one of those like just has face a picture marks. of Tom Hanks just a picture of face. Tom Hanks yeah that sounds amazing yes. And nothing else has changed. <laughs> nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. No one questions it either. Yeah, would you have to have, like, different face masks for, like, you Tom know, different Hanks expressions? Sad. 
Or alternately, would you have the same kind of happy expression the whole time? Or better, would you be able to like draw on, for example, angry eyebrows for when he's angry? It's like latte, you have different masks. To to be fair, basically Benji in this film only had like two emotions and they were blank and feeling put upon. Like, oh, I have to deal with this now. I mean, he did have another emotion when he realised that... um, Oh, what's his name? Alan Swan. I keep trying to say Peter Rachel. That Alan Swan had gone to Connecticut. He did have a very good shocked face. That's true. Yeah, three. Emotions. Very good Pikachu shocked face. <laughs> no, I did. I did shocked think... Tom Hanks Pikachu. There's our image for this week. <laughs> yeah, I did actually think that the actor did a good job portraying. Yeah, so like, he is kind of playing like the straight-ish man. And I did think he did a, do a good job of that, you know, as a counterweight to Peter O'Toole doing whatever Peter O'Toole wants to do. You look great. How do you feel? I feel surprisingly well, Stone. Thank you. So well that I'm going to make a prediction. Now, usually it takes me two or three takes just to warm up, but tonight I predict we'll get it on the first take. And we always get it on the first take. We have to. You do? Sure, this is live television. Live. Wait a minute. Mr. Swan, you're white. You mean it all goes into the camera lens and then just spills out into people's houses? Yeah, it's nothing to worry about, Mr. Swan. Our audiences are great. Audience? What audience? Audience? You knew there was an audience. What did you think those seats were for? I haven't performed in front of an audience for 28 years. (laughs) Audience? This is going to be easy. For you, maybe. Not for me. I'm not an actor. I'm a movie star. Just Pedro Tool being a tool. I think you should uh, make that the tagline of the film. <laughs> Callum, what's your meme? Callum. My meme. My meme is uh, Herb's existence. Oh. Just the entirety of this film. I love that he manages to spend the entire film without saying a single word himself until like the last scene when it's just a bunch of people punching each other and he just stands there and says, this makes me happy. <laughs> and I'm like... Good for you, Herb. Good that you know what makes you happy and you you found your bliss. I'm going to say that was the only time I laughed. Because <laughs> I thought, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> okay, previously I'd said, like, it's fine. You can have your, you have your opinion. I'm interested to see what you hear. Uh, the moment that you've said that, no. No, I've, I've decided you, you, your, uh, your opinions are now irrelevant. Apologies, Carrie. <laughs> I'm I feel sorry. like that could be a word art. Your opinions are irrelevant. Apologies, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the thing is, it caught me off guard because at the beginning I was like, oh, he's going to say something later, going to come up with a funny one-liner, and then it's going to be like, oh, he could speak the whole time. But, I, but at that point, I'd completely forgotten about it. And so when he said something, I was like... <laughs> you did the wheeze. That's an exact recreation of how I laughed. <laughs> Dramatic realization. Yeah, I did. I did do a cackle there. Like there were a lot of other points in this film where I did, you know, just full on cackle. Uh, it wasn't just that, but yeah, I did appreciate that moment. Yeah, w- without fail, every single time I watched this film, I forget that he gets that line at the end. So it always makes me laugh. I forget so much about this film. I always forget He's the mob so boss subplot. He's so consistently plot. forgettable that it works. Yeah. Yeah. He really sold his lack of character for the rest of the film. Oh god, poor man. <laughs> so, with uh, with those sections out of the way, um, I guess the uh, the next question we have is, uh, what do you guys think the moral of the story is? I think the moral of the story is that you need to shout at actors for reasons of character development. Very interesting. When life gives you assassins, accidentally make a really funny sketch out of it. You totally won't die from the outcome. Definitely not. Yeah, I yeah. think that's very solid advice. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that's that's a solid moral for the story. Um, Thank you. Thank my, you very my, much. Uh, my, my moral for the story is hug your kids. If he'd, if he'd just, you know, stuck around and, and hugged his kid a bit more, who knows? Maybe maybe this whole film wouldn't have existed. And oh no, that's a, that, that's a sad thing for me, though. Um, don't hug kids. That's my moral of the story. <laughs> Don't hug also kids. Also planning on having kids, so the fact I'm I, I shouldn't hug kids is is great for me. I'm absolutely fine with that. I'm happy with that. 
Yeah, yeah, especially at the moment. What with social distancing? Just, yeah. don't, just don't hug kids. Avoid kids. Just don't hug anyone. Wash your hands instead. <laughs> Wash your hands to recreate the feeling of warmth. <laughs> uh, it's funny because it's true. Anyway, um, let's let's cast our uh, cast ourselves back through the, the the ripples of time to view what we had said was going to happen in this film. So it begins with a dude named. George. And he decides he wants to be a pilot. He ends up going to pilot school. And then he meets a girl. Her name is Roberta. They discover they both have a mutual love for Bruce Springsteen. They find their love for each other and they end up snogging and turns out Roberta has a, has a, has a boyfriend. But he ends up passing exams and he ends up becoming a pilot. And that's why it is their favourite year. Roberta does have a boyfriend. His name is um, Jetson in... Top man. What did I get correct? You said I got some stuff right. I said some of those may be correct. So I didn't get anything right? No. You got the fact that it was a musical comedy kind of right because it was turned into a musical. Yes, you predicted the future somehow without knowing anything correct about it. I didn't know that. That's so Carrie. (laughs) It's the musical I can see. So, uh, now we've uh, been reminded of uh, the story that Carrie created for us. Did we prefer how it goes or how it doesn't? Claire, how about you? As, you know, endearing and really interesting as I thought, you know, the musical comedy about pilots was, and also that one guy who worked in Top Man... Uh, As intriguing as that seemed, I think I prefer how it actually went uh, because it was a real good film as previously discussed. However, if somebody wants to make uh, a musical about pilots and this one guy who works at Top Man, I would absolutely see that. Cool. Carrie. I'm really sorry. (laughs) (sighs) Just take a moment. And before you before you say anything, Carrie, um, consider that your answer to this question may well be the deciding factor on whether there is a next episode or not. So, no, it's fine. It's fine. I promise. I'm sorry. I prefer how it doesn't because at least you know my vision of Roberta has some form of character integrity. And I really want to know about the guy who works at Top Man. I have a resolution for you. Go to Top Man, speak to a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Once this is all over and we're allowed to go outside again. Imagine going to Top Man. No, because I need this guy from Top Man to also bring into a musical dance number about he's annoyed about a guy who's training to be a pilot. Okay. Go to a city with a musical theatre degree course. Go to Top Man, speak to a guy. There will be one who is on that degree course. <laughs> it's guaranteed. Yeah. Every Top Man requires at least one musical theatre student. It's because you need to test their genes for, like, split leaps. Mm. Which is, you know, how... It's a top, top Man's, like, priority selling I point. thought you were about to say you were testing their DNA. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, I also thought when you said test their genes, I was like, I'm about to learn something here. Is, is, is musical theatre genetic? One could argue that's one for another time. That's one for would... the eugenicist self, huh? What? What? Anyway. What are we talking about? I was saying I prefer how it doesn't. Callum is heartbroken. I, um,. I must disagree in the most strenuous way it's possible for me to disagree with a, a fellow Hufflepuff. Carrie, you are wrong. <gasps> Wait, Callum, did you actually prefer how it went as opposed to Carrie's fever dream? I, I do. I do prefer how this film went to Carrie's fever dream musical about a pilot and someone who works at Top Man. See, the more we talk about it, the more I want to see this musical. I, I do want to see this musical, but I you know somehow you want to doubt... join my side, Claire. 
Don't don't you do this. I want them to be two separate things. I don't wish that the film had been replaced by the musical. I want them to both exist. Yeah, to be honest, if I could have both, I would have both. But considering that is not an option, I I I slightly favour my fever dream more. That's fair. It may be Easter, but you didn't need to be this much for Judas to me, Carrie. <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So I'm just checking your back. Oh my god, that was savage. I love it. (laughs) Anyway, with with that out of the way, it's time for our ratings for this film. So, um, how many commandeered police horses out of ten do you give it, Kerr? Kerr. Kerr. Just start saying Kerr and then end up saying Claire. I was like, I should say one of the names, and I couldn't decide if I was saying Carrie or Claire, and I went, Kerr. We are one. I'm going to give it nine commandeered police horses out of ten. I really like this film. It's got its issues, but I just really enjoy it. Okay. This is my fourth watch, and mm-hmm. I don't like films. <laughs> Here we go. We knew this was going to come out at some point on this podcast. We we discovered we discovered after we started recording this podcast that Claire doesn't like films. No, we just because the reason I haven't seen many films is because I'm not really a film person. We discussed this. But, you know, this is really expanding my horizons. <laughs> this is what makes it interesting. Yeah. Dif- differing opinions is always interesting. Especially really if like... they are wrong. Carrie, how many do you give this out of ten? <laughs> I... I'm going to give it a six out of ten. Because... I think it does have some enjoyable aspects to it and there are features to it which I like, but overall to me, it's a bit of a hit and miss. I would happily watch it again with both of you because I love you, but I wouldn't watch it on my own again. You can go lower if you want. Yeah. Like, that's okay. But you can be honest with your rating. You don't have to make it bigger to make me feel better if you want to. <laughs> okay, then 5.5. As for me... I love this film. I I love it so much. And I agree that there are issues with it. And that is what stops me from being able to give it a perfect score. So it is a 9.5 for me. I, I, I adore it for many reasons. But there are there are flaws such as the ending and some of the treatment of um, female characters and minority characters that stop it from being what I consider kind of film perfection but it's as close as it can get for me. I have a comment that I want to make. See, I think you are perfectly valid to not like this film. Yeah. I support you. Thanks, babes. Thanks, Slytherin. I support you in the right for your opinion to be wrong. I need to have it anyway. Am I just stirring? Am I being chewed to my house in this way? Yes, you are. <laughs> it's all right. I'm, I'm going to stop bothering you about this now. I, I, I don't care that much, as, as I'm sure you know. I'm going to remind you of that when you're crying yourself to sleep later. It's fine. Um, (laughs) So, um, social media things. Well, folks, we have a Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We are on Twitter and Instagram at SeeHowItGoesPod. We publish behind-the-scenes stuff and we also publish our highlights, our scores and also clues for upcoming episodes. And we are also on Facebook at SeeHowItGoes. So get on it, folks, and please leave a very lovely review on the Apple Store. We'd love to hear some feedback to grow and improve. So that would be nice, please. Oh, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at CarrieMo97, and I have a business photography Instagram of CarrieMo Photography. She take pictures real good. good. She do. She She do. do. Imagine if we were in the same (laughs) team. Just imagine. What that reminds that me of um, I Do Anything from Oliver. She takes the pictures. Good. good. She do. Uh, if you want to follow me on the Twitters, uh, you can find me at Callum Neville. Or if you want to find some of my musical things, then um, you can look up Arpeggio Music on YouTube, A-R-P-G-I-O. Uh, it's all uh, royalty-free stuff. So if you want to use any of it for your own projects then uh, please do and please uh, give us a link or give uh, give me a link to your project because I'd love to see my, my music being used for something and I just want it to be out there for people to do what they want with. Apart from that, uh, you can follow that as well on uh, ARPGIO on Twitter. 
Um, and uh, that's about it for me. He make music real good. Thanks. He so do. You might have. He do. You might have to share a jingle. Tell you what, Callum can compose it and Carrie can edit it. Thank you for making more work for us, Claire. You're welcome. It's what I do best. <laughs> yeah, the, our charity for this episode is a charity called We Are With You. Uh, it can be reached at wearewithyou.org.uk. It's an organisation that uh, supports people struggling with alcohol and substance abuse or mental health. Uh, they've got local services and also online services. And given that quite a major plot point of this film is obviously Alan Swan struggling with like alcohol dependency, um, thought that if anybody is struggling with this or would like to make a donation, this is a really great charity that supports people uh, struggling with this and helps people through it. And they do loads and loads of great work. So if you want to reach them, they are wearewithyou.org.uk and they could really use your support. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much, both of you, for, for being with us today to do this episode. And we'll be back next time with an as-of-yet undecided film. Have we ever decided the next film beforehand? For the first episode, yes. Okay, yeah. Since then, no. <laughs> but we'll see you next time <laughs> for, uh, for more of whatever this is. Let's see how it goes. Bye, everybody. Bye 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 b